of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudator Jesus Christus in Secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Today we are very happy to be joined by an esteemed guest, Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Hahn, it is a joy and an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. You're most welcome. But thank you, Timothy, for the, the virtual hospitality and the gracious invitation and also for all the good work you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Han. I, I I can't. I don't even know what to say. Coming from you, Dr. Han, um, Dr. Han needs no introduction, but he is the editor or writer of over forty books. He is the founder of Saint Paul Center. And before we get into our topic, um, can you speak on what's new at the Saint Paul Center? The Saint Paul Center is, I understand it, it, it publishes under Emmaus Academic and also Emmaus Road, and then you also have Nova Advetera and podcasts. What's new at the St. Paul Center these days? Uh, right behind me, you'll see the dark blue volumes of the Aquinas Institute project, too. We're publishing the Opera Omnia of St. Thomas with the Latin and the English side by side. It's the first time in the history of the English language that the entirety of St. Thomas Aquinas' works will be available in translation online as well. And uh, so we have the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, it's been around for about 21 years. And then we also have Emmaus Road Publishing. And then the academic arm is Emmaus Academic, where we publish a lot of textbooks for seminarians, as well as more scholarly resources. And it's been a, 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 it's been a joy so far. We have over 40 full-time teammates, co-workers here at the St. Paul Center. And the newest thing is the construction site that I passed on my way down here to the studio. Uh, there must be at least 30 construction workers that have begun, oh, I guess three months ago. And by November 1st of next year, we should have a 25,000 square foot building right across from the entrance to Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're looking forward to that grand opening, but we're also praying for supply chains and all kinds of issues to be, you know, averted. And so far, so good. And, uh, yeah, I could go on and on because this is something so much bigger and better than I ever imagined, but it's also daunting. I never imagined myself being the president of an organization with more than four full-time, much less over 40, but there is really a esprit de corps, and uh, what we're doing is for beginners, intermediates, and advanced for Catholics especially, but also for non-Catholics, and it's reading scripture from the heart of the church, not just treating the Bible like a secular book or one that is out there in the public square for anyone just to kind of comment upon, but recognizing that sacred scripture has for its own natural habitat, the church's sacramental liturgy. As a matter of historical fact, Jesus never said, write this in remembrance of me. He said, do this, speaking of the Eucharist, but calling it the New Testament. And so we're putting out there the idea that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it became a document, according to the document. And when you read the document of sacred scripture subordinated to the real presence of the resurrected Lord, I mean, it's just, um, it's transformational. 
And I think it's the one thing that traditional Catholics have somewhat lacked. I know you wrote a book years ago on the introduction of the Bible from a traditional perspective, but it's uh, it's one of those things that I, I, I consider something of a miss a missing component. And so uh, biblical literacy for Catholic lay people, biblical fluency for our clergy and our educators. We have three different priest retreats each year now, uh, one in January in California, one after Easter in April down in Austin, Texas, and then one in late summer, July at Ogle Bay Resort, about 45 minutes from where I'm here at the, uh, the St. Paul Center. So nearly 700 priests participated in this nearly week-long retreat uh, this year. And the experience is Emmausian, like the Emmaus Road. Did not our hearts burn within us as the scriptures are opened, but our eyes are open in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. And so reuniting sacred scripture with the sacred liturgy is sort of what we're trying to do for generations to come. Oh, that is beautiful. I, I think that uh, summarized a, a beautiful apologetic of that the, the New Testament is a sacrament before it's a document, um, which I know I, I've heard you lift from Ratzinger, Verbum Domini. Um, before we get off of the St. Paul Center, is there a place for people to sign up for a newsletter to get news and resources on the website? There sure is. Thanks for asking. If you go to stpaulcenter.com, S-T- paulcenter.com, you'll be able to get access to my new book, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. But you can also find out more information of uh, about our, our priest retreat. And uh, we're having one coming up in Napa in January. And we have literally uh, dozens and dozens of lay people who sponsor their own parish priests. And it is not, um, it is not the TLM retreat, and yet we do have a number of TLM priests who come and we accommodate them by enabling them to uh, to say the TLM uh, uh, in, a, in a very sacred setting. Uh, I could go on, but I mean, I would just encourage our uh, our viewers to to go to the website and explore it because they'll find lots of really solid and I hope inspiring material. Fantastic! So excellent, thank you, Dr. Han. So we're talking today about holy is His name. The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture, which is Scott Hahn's new book. And before we get into that, I just want to, I think viewers or listeners might be interested. We are, and with the Fellowship of St. Anthony is, is our lay sodality. It's a, it's a lay group of uh, lay faithful offering penance for clergy and seminarians. And we're beginning a yearly Bible reading plan, which is the liturgical reading plan, which reads through the whole Bible, which is adapted according to the traditional office of Matins. And it reads the, the whole Bible every year. And we're starting that this Advent, if anybody's interested. So if you're interested, you can click the link to the Fellowship of St. Anthony. But with all that, let's get into your book. Okay, but before we do, let me Go just ahead. say, I'm interested. <laughs> How do I get a copy? Is there a hard copy of this or is it only online? Oh, I, it's it's in my Introduction to the Holy Bible. Uh, it's here, but I'll, I'll send you a we, we put it into a booklet too. Yeah, I'll definitely send this oh, to you. We could talk. Well whenever. done. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, your new book, here it is. Holy is his name. Uh, really a fantastic meditation on this central thing in Holy Scripture, yet, as you mentioned, is very rarely defined even in the catechism. Now, I wanted to start with one of your main sources here is Rabbi 
Joshua Berman. Um, how did you come upon this Orthodox rabbi? What insights struck you and how did that help you see the Christian revelation in a new way in terms of holiness? Rabbi Joshua Berman has become a friend. He is uh, a Jewish biblical scholar and he's Orthodox and he has the academic credentials to impress anybody. One of his earliest books was on the temple. And I read this and I was struck by a kind of small s sacramental vision of creation, of time, of space, and, and how useful this was seeing how the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new, especially by Christ, who is the new temple and the body of Christ. And, and so I am obviously interested in doing things with his work that he is not necessarily at all interested in, but we had communication over the years and he's gone on to produce a number of other books, including a very strong critique of the documentary hypothesis, which I think seriously misreads the Pentateuch by chopping it up into various sources. Uh, J-E-D-P is the most familiar version of the documentary hypothesis. But without falling into the temptation to take a tangent, you can find in the, um, the work of Rabbi Berman, as well as a, a book that is coming out in a matter of weeks by my dear friends, Dr. John Bergsma and uh, Dr. Jeff Morrow, a convert from Judaism, murmuring against Mo Moses. And it's a, a very careful and probing critique of the documentary hypothesis to show how anti-Jewish it is, but also anti-Catholic and above all, anti-liturgical, anti-priestly. And the founder of it, Julius Wellhausen, made no attempt to hide the fact that the earliest J and E is like a personal relationship with you know, the Lord in a chummy sort of way. And then it's mediated by the laws of Deuteronomy until it's then kind of complex, complexified by the hidebound priestly ritualism of P. And so we have deep sympathies, even though he is approaching everything as a, a rabbinic scholar. Uh, nevertheless, we have notable common ground. And so what I point out that I learned from him was the surprising discovery that Nobody in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as it were, is called a saint, you know. And so when you look at the Tanakh through the eyes of a rabbi, you notice that holiness occurs all over the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But nobody is ever referred to as a saint. You have uh, the, the holy ground where the burning bush is. You have the holy tabernacle, the holy ark, the holy altar, the holy vestments. And Israel is called to be a holy nation. Aaron, the high priest, is called to holiness. He's to turn around in Leviticus 17 to 27, where you find the holiness code, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Uh, but nobody, and so what I do is to trace a narrative arc from the old to the new, to show the catastrophic disaster of original sin, where our first parents forfeited sanctifying grace, which explains why holiness occurs only once in all 50 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 3, where the seventh day is declared to be holy, the Sabbath as the sign of the covenant, which our first father broke. And so sanctifying grace is eviscerated. Uh, and so original sin is not being born depraved, it's being born deprived of the sanctifying grace that our first parents had and then forfeited 
when they committed spiritual suicide or what the Catechism of Trent called the death of the soul, quoting Aquinas. So, I mean, what I, I can't go into it all now, obviously, but when you trace that narrative arc, you discover that there is a kind of exception that proves the rule that Berman posits, and that is in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, beginning especially in verse 13, in Daniel 7, 13, you have Daniel in, a, in his night visions seeing something far off in the future, namely the Son of Man ascending on the clouds of glory to the Father, the Ancient of Days, and to him is conferred this kingdom, this everlasting dominion, this worldwide kingdom. And then in the second half of the vision, he turns around and gives that kingdom to, quote, the saints of the Most High. Well, it's the exception that proves the rule because on the one hand, the saints aren't named, and on the other hand, it's still off in the future. But it sets the stage for why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and not just the Son of God. It also explains the purpose of his redemptive incarnation by assuming our nature. He has come for the purpose of transmitting to us a share in his own divine nature to make us partakers of the divine nature, as we read in 2 Peter 1.4. In a certain sense, it's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but a fulfillment that surpasses the highest hopes of the Hebrew people, even the holiest of them, if such there were. And I also point out that in the fullness of time, with the Paschal mystery, as it were, the, the memorial of his death and resurrection, the memorial instituted on Holy Thursday, the death on Good Friday, the resurrection on Easter Sunday, you have in Matthew 27, verse 50 and following, this strange report that only Matthew records about how the tombs of the Old Testament saints were opened, and for a short time, they were seen as witnesses around Jerusalem. Well, where were they? Well, they were presumably in Abraham's bosom. The souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament weren't ready yet for heaven, and yet when Jesus ascends into heaven, as St. Paul would tell the Ephesians, he takes captivity captive. He has liberated them from Sheol or Hades or Abraham's bosom, and he not only ascends with them into heaven, conferring upon them and us the kingdom that is worldwide, divine, and everlasting, but the saints of the Most High end up repopulating heaven. Another point that I make in the book, when you study how gradual the revelation of holiness is, moving from the old to the new, you discover that all of the visions of heaven in the old that you find in the prophets, the population of heaven is exclusively angelic, such as you see in Isaiah 6, where the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. On the other hand, when you go to the New Testament, it goes largely unnoticed, but that with the ascension of Jesus into heaven, with his own royal coronation, with his own priestly administration beginning, you have heaven repopulated. So the next time you hear the Trishagion is in Revelation 4, verse 8, but it's not exclusively angels that are saints singing and chanting. It is the holy saints. It is the martyrs. It is the, the 24 elders. It is the vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that constitute the kingdom of the saints of the Most High. And to me, this is not just something that is futuristic at the end of time. It really is something that is Eucharistic, as I kind of outlined 20 plus years ago in a book that I wrote called The Lamb's Supper, The Masses, Heaven and Earth, where I sort of figured out finally 
that the meaning of the book of Revelation is not the Antichrist or the second coming or the rapture, words and phrases that don't even occur a single time in the apocalypse, but it really is about the heavenly liturgy, this holiness that has now enveloped us as a result of the incarnation of Christ and also the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin, but this uh, eruption of divinizing grace that is effected by the Eucharistic transformation of death from the loss of life to the gift of life, and then the resurrection as more than a resuscitated corpse, but truly the divinization of Jesus' own sacred humanity and of ours as well. I know I always have this habit of trying to squeeze an ocean through a funnel, but you're probably aware of that. No, this is, I mean, we could meditate for three hours and every sentence you just put out. I mean, this is, this is what makes this book so powerful. Um, I want to get, I want to get to Daniel in a minute, but first sure. I want to, I want to touch on one of the main passages that you reflect on throughout the book is Isaiah six. As you mentioned, you write on page 75, in the Hebrew language, adjectives are intensified by repetition. So holy, holy, holy would be equivalent to uh, equivalent of holier and holy, 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 the equivalent of holiest. And you mention how uh, we never see, it is the only time in the Old Testament we find a threefold repetition of a quality of God. We never see mercy, 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 for example, or love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. And this obviously calls to mind the holy, the Trisagion that's in many rites of the of the Catholic Church, not just the Roman rite. And uh, but one of the most powerful things you bring out later on in the book is the Christological interpretation of Isaiah six. I thought this was just mind blowing. Um, that which you based on um, your your teacher uh, J Ramsey Michael. Can you can you elaborate at all on that for the viewers? <laughs> Sorry. Talk about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, uh, I, I want to take big, large baby steps. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that holiness is not the same as righteousness. As good Catholics, we speak of unity and distinction. And so we distinguish holiness from righteousness. Uh, kadosh from Zadak. Or Zadik, and they're obviously inseparable, but they're too frequently confused and reduced one to the other. And so righteousness tends to be ethical rectitude, that is keeping commandments. It's administered by the king from the palace according to the law, especially the second table of the law, whereas holiness is more vertical, whereas righteousness is more horizontal. Holiness pertains to that which is proper to God alone, and how we approach God both personally, privately, but also publicly and corporately. And the first table of the law, the first three commandments have to do with holiness. It's administered by the priest, not the king, in the temple, not the palace, especially in the sanctuary. And not just the holy place, but the holy of holies, which is where the high priest alone goes, but only on the day of atonement. But what Isaiah is describing in chapter 6 is really not just the temple where you have the Holy of Holies, but a heavenly temple. And so he begins by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, and we would assume that's sort of like, you know, a little temporal bookmark so that we know where chron chronologically it happened. But no, it also explains theologically 
what is happening. Because in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And the seraphim are the ones who sing, holy, holy, holy. The foundations of the thresholds shake. And then Isaiah's response is not, oh, cool. It is, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness. And so the backstory, I think, is important because King Uzziah was the 10th in the line of the Judahite kings from David, 8th century, near the beginning of Isaiah's half-century prophetic ministry. And Uzziah was, to call him successful is an understatement. He extended the boundaries of Israel as far as they go. He also uh, caused this prosperous economy. And so the uh, military, the economic, and the, the geographical. I mean, he was making Israel great again, you could say, greater than it had been. And that success kind of caused his head to swell. And you read in Second Chronicles 26 that one day, you know, so puffed up with pride, he took a stroll from the palace into the temple. Okay, he could do that as a pilgrim. But then he continued that stroll all the way into the holy place where priests alone are allowed. The priest tried to stop him, but he just kept going in further, really out of his own realm of righteousness, of justice, into the priestly realm of holiness and that which is strictly sacred for the priests. And suddenly he sees and the priests see that he's covered with leprosy. And so they have to kind of drag him out by force. They don't just take him back to the palace I imagine they set up something like a little royal leper's house where he then died. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah is discovering at least a few things. Number one, who was the real king and still is? Number two, what is the difference between the righteousness that is to be administered by the king and the holiness that is administered by the priests of God alone in the temple? But you also find the sense that Isaiah is aware of the fact of his own corporate solidarity, you know, with unclean Israel. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land full of unclean people. Well, uncleanness would have had a deep resonance because of the leprosy that took out the king at the height of his own career and success. It is like a reality check. Wait a minute, you know, what is going on here? Well, what is going on? is a revelation that holiness pertains to God alone. He alone is holy, and he can confer that upon the sanctuary and call the priest to holiness and have the priest call the people to holiness. But the other thing that you mentioned and I develop in the book is the curious use of the expression, I saw the Lord lifted up, sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. And that phrase occurs again in Isaiah, the suffering servant song of Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through Isaiah 53, 12. This is one of the most important, profound, and well-known of these messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. With his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, etc., etc. But the opening of the vision of the suffering servant is somewhat unexpectedly 
Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up. Upsao in the Septuagint translation. And I point out that uh, this same term, the same allusion occurs twice in John's gospel. And Johannine scholars have picked up on this in a way that is, I think, truly patristic. In John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and then in John 12, where the Son of Man will be glorified, and how he will be lifted up, and he will draw all men to himself. And he will also, by being lifted up, cast the serpent, cast the prince of this world out, as it were. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then suddenly John interrupts his own discourse from Jesus to add parenthetically an important remark. Because if we just kept reading, we would naturally assume or conclude that Jesus referring to his being lifted up must be his ascension or at least his resurrection. But what John adds, he said this to show by what death he was to die. And it's like, no, no, no. When he dies the death of crucifixion, at that moment, the ruler of this world has momentarily triumphed. Unless, of course, Jesus is right and the appearances are wrong. No, when he is lifted up, he is not losing his life. He is transforming death into the glorious gift of life in a kind of mystery that images the inner life of the Holy Trinity, that the Father makes his life a gift of eternal love so as to generate the Son, and the Son loves the Father with the same life and the gift of love that he gets. And so the spiration of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son is, as it were, this mystery of life-giving love that will be imaged on the cross, but only to the eyes of faith. And this is going to be the essential manifestation of the truth of Jesus Christ's kingship, that he is a royal high priest, that he is a king who rules through love, but not love, love, love like we had back in the 70s, you know, with the Beatles and Woodstock and, you know, the whole hippie hangover that I tried to recover from 50 years ago when I first converted. No, what is going on here is... Jesus being lifted up on the cross is going to manifest the mysterious essence of the very power of God's holy kingdom. And just so you don't miss it, John also goes on to say, as it is in John 12, verse 38, it was that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 1. What I just quoted from, that is the suffering servant psalm. Uh, and so when you look at it closely, you wonder why in the world would John then add another parenthetical remark? Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So Isaiah in chapter 6, and once again Isaiah in chapter 52, 13, at the opening of the suffering servant oracle, sees the all-holy glory of God. But what John is telling us is that he had a vision of Jesus Christ reigning from the wood of the cross, as St. Augustine put it so aptly. And it's like that, I mean, that's beyond counterintuitive. Uh, that's like looking at a photographic negative and realizing, wait a second, what looks dark is actually light, and what looks light is actually dark. What looks like the triumph of the devil is his actual defeat, 
what looks like the defeat of the Savior is this divine conquest, this triumph. And, you know, only when you look through the eyes of faith do you recognize that prophecy is embedded throughout the Old Testament, not just the prophets, but the law and the prophets, so that Christ could say, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer before entering into his glory after he had rebuked Clopas in Luke 24? Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so I try to keep this in the book somewhat easy breezy, as you probably noticed, Timothy. But at the same time, I cite these sources that people can look up in order to really not just water ski on the surface, but really do some deep sea diving into what I would consider a neo-patristic, but truly traditional way of reading Catholic scripture in the light of Catholic worship, especially the holy sacrifice of the mass. Truly glorious. Uh, and, and you're quoting this um, variant from, uh, I believe it's Psalm 95, the tell it out of the among the nations, the Lord hath reigned from the tree. Um, but speaking of manuscripts, I want to have you elaborate on some of the things you say in passing that are so fascinating. One of the things you mentioned in, in later on in the book, you you meditate on the differences between the deuterocanonical view of holiness. And you, you say that this really just confirms Rabbi Berman's thesis. And you say they show us Israel on the cusps of salvation and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. One of the things that uh, one of the things I thought of was. What they say was uh, the daily psalm recitation of a, of a Jew, which many say our Lord himself would have recited, which namely Psalm 148, 149, and 150. And in, at the end of 149, I just looked up the, the wording here. So at the end of 149, if we're looking at uh, Dewey Reams Chaloner, it says this glory is to all his saints, uh, which is in the context, it's definitely talking about um people and then the very next verse which would have been the next thing you chant in this whole 148 to 150 is praise god and his saints and according to the masoretic it has uh for 149 it has godly ones so it doesn't have that cov um the kadosh, kadosh trilateral root whereas in the sanctuary it does uh but then in the septuagint it seems to maintain this distinction because it uses hasiis versus hagis which is this distinction, but Hagis can also mean holy things. That's right. And, and in Latin, it's it's just sanctis. Uh, but it's interesting how um, do you see God using the Greek, as, as we might say, for example, in the in the Isaiah seven controversy with Alma versus Parthenos? Uh, do you see the the Greek Septuagint sort of bringing in an interpretive key during this exilic and post-exilic period? Um, can you elaborate on what you mean by they show Israel on the cusp of salvation? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Timothy, thank you for posting this up on, you know, as a visual for people to see. Uh, because what I want to, I want to take a step back and emphasize what I am doing is so, something of a soft distinction. This is not like the thesis of the book, but it is part of the subplot. That is, what our first parents had received in sanctifying grace is, I think, almost entirely overlooked, misunderstood, or distorted by modern Catholic theologians and certainly by Protestant theologians. And so the catastrophic effects of original sin are not to be minimized, as they are so frequently, but they're also not to be distorted, as Protestantism has, has often done, by reducing 
original sin to total depravity. You know, no, Paul in describing Romans, Paul in describing original sin in Romans 5, 12 to 21, describes it in terms of being deprived of divine life. It is the death of the soul. And the body eventually catches up and dies as well. But the, the physical death is the separation of soul and body. The spiritual death is the separation of the natural soul from the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying grace. And so I don't want to make a big wall in terms of the Old Testament. Nobody's called a saint. And the New Testament, lots of people are. Because everybody's called to become a saint. But there's a certain dramatic tension held in suspense until the incarnation. But at the same time, as you get closer and closer, beyond the exodus, beyond the conquest, beyond the establishment of the kingdom, the Old Testament ends up reading like a story in search of an ending with the people of God in exile, with all of these apparently unfulfilled promises. And the promises are expected to be fulfilled simply by a kind of royal priestly restoration for the tribe of Judah, royalty for the tribe of Levi in terms of priesthood, when all of that is a kind of scale model, a rough draft, a photographic negative of what Christ alone through the incarnation can effect and does, especially through the power of the Spirit working in the sacraments. And so as you get closer and closer to the threshold at the end of the old and the beginning of the new, there's a kind of a thinning of the membrane. And there's a sense in the intertestamental period, especially with martyrdom emerging for the first time. This is something else that people don't largely notice that martyrdom is really only in the second half of the so-called Davidic millennium. Isaiah is the first of them by being sawn in half inside a log alluded to in Hebrews 11 uh, and also in the, uh, in the work on the, uh, the death of Isaiah, uh, a non-canonical work. But the, as you were saying, Timothy, the Septuagint is translating the Hebrew into the Greek. It's pre-Christian. It's Alexandrian. But down in Alexandria, you know, Philo, for example, has already described in Genesis 2.17, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Philo describes as an Alexandrian first century Jew that what our first father experienced was spiritual death, the death of the soul. He doesn't have a developed notion of sanctifying grace. You can't until the incarnation. Likewise, Judaism doesn't have any doctrine of original sin. You don't know what you've lost until it's been restored by the new Adam. But there is this sense of a gradual light that is beginning to dawn at the end of the Old Testament for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and precision to translate Alma as Parthenos so that it's not just a young maiden having a child named Emmanuel. What kind of divine sign would that be? Right, exactly. <laughs> but Parthenos is not a Christian bias inserted into the Septuagint translation because they were Jews, not Christians translating it. But there is, as you intimated, Timothy, this dawning sense that there is, we're on the cusp of something. And the fulfillment is going to be so wondrous. You know, as I said, the Old Testament reads like a story in search of an ending. But our problem tends to be that if you just read the New Testament, it's practically, it's theologically unintelligible apart from the Old. You're hearing all about the promises that have been fulfilled, but you don't know the law and the prophets all well enough to understand, okay, what promises, what covenants, what oracles, you know, what types are there? And so we can memorize lists, but until we get to realize 
you know, that Clopas and his companion weren't biblical ignoramuses. They knew the law and the prophets, or at least they thought they did. But until Christ's death and resurrection, you know, effects this fulfillment, you almost have to perform a hermeneutical act of reverse engineering and start reading everything backwards in light of the Christ, in, in light of Christ's ascension, in, in light of his own royal priesthood, in light of the book of Hebrews. I call Hebrews the Leviticus of the New Testament. And that's why people stay away from that like they do Leviticus. But you know, chapter 12 is where I'm arguing that the unspoken assumption behind the entire argument of Hebrews is Eucharist, Eucharist. And, you know, I actually presented that chapter as a paper to the Evangelical Theological Society, expecting a lot of blowback. Oh. But instead, I got a lot of very, very positive feedback. Oh, fantastic. Uh, that's great. Yeah, this is, that was one of my favorite chapters. Is the, I was the hoping it would be, yeah. Yeah, the, the, as a Eucharistic homily uh, and the Eucharistic uh, interpretation of Hebrews, right. very powerful. Um, I wanted to ask you about another thing that I, I was in um, conversation with a, an Orthodox Jewish uh, scholar named Henry Abramson. And he was telling me how um, the the rabbinical Pharisaic understanding of the glory cloud, which is another um, manifestation of the locus of holiness, which comes down upon the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. And it also comes down upon the first temple. But then conspicuously, it is absent from the second temple. And. I, I just read in Sirach, which was fascinating, that Sirach actually says at the end, chapter 49, that Jesus ben Josedek built the second temple prepared for everlasting glory. And uh, I was talking with uh, Henry Erbenson about this, and he he said that um, at least the it seems to be the dominant rabbinical view is that the glory cloud sort of went into exile with the people. And so the Jewish people sort of have the glory cloud somehow with them. And... Um, Whereas Christians, we would understand, we would view this as really uh, one interpretation is the Virgin Mary receives the the, the overshadowing. Um, but I thought of this when you when you make this passing comment, which was very fascinating to me on page 66, because I was just reading Esther and uh, you mentioned this, how uh, Berman, Rabbi Berman mentions uh, Esther and he says, quote, when God's name is entirely omitted, it is not merely because his guiding hand is hidden in the unfolding drama. It is because God himself has been hidden by those who would serve him. And you comment, the exiles had turned their attention away from heaven and toward an earthly throne. And so it's it's very fascinating that when I think of this backdrop of sort of this Hebrew or Jewish understanding of the Kavod has sort of stayed with the people as sort of a, a national in turning in towards the oneself and how the Hebrew, Hebrew text of Esther does not mention God, whereas what do you make of the Greek text? Because the Greek text has this amazing prayer of, of Queen Esther, and all of these, it's sort of this recapitulation that happens at the end, recapitulates the whole story again, but mentions God's work. And so it's this very fascinating look here. Um, so any comments on any of that, any comments on Esther, the meaning of Esther, or the meaning of the, the Pharisaic understanding, the rabbinic understanding, any comments, any of that? Well, I mean, let me begin at the end of your comments. Um, uh, I had to expunge certain sections of this book to kind of keep it easy breezy at a kind of high school graduate level. And that was one of the sections I chose. Oh, okay. Where you do expand upon the intertestamental work of the translators of the Septuagint. 
And was there a proto-Masoretic text that included this? There must have been something for them to translate there in Alexandria. Um, and I think there might have been a reaction against that translation. You know, there's this Pharisaic maxim that is post-Christian, that what the golden calf was to our ancient fathers, the Septuagint is more recently. Uh, so they really see the Septuagint as defiling the hands and the minds of those who read it. And what would explain that? Nothing, really, except the early Jewish Christian apologetic utilization of the Septuagint and the fact that the New Testament writers are almost always quoting from some version of the Septuagint. And, and of course, our canon of the Old Testament differs from the Protestant precisely because we follow the Septuagint, the so-called Alexandrian canon, where they're following the so-called Yamnian or Masoretic or uh, Palestinian canon, even though that's anachronistic. It's much, much later that we have that. Okay, I want to put that aside because that's something of a sidebar. But get back to the beginning of your question where you speak of the, the glory, the kavod, or what is now called the Shekinah glory, though the term Shekinah does not occur in the uh, in the Old Testament. That's also a kind of rabbinic gloss that comes later and has been assimilated into Christian theological vocabulary as of late. It's fine. But there in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is consecrated, the fire of God's holiness comes down. And likewise, in 1 Kings, when Solomon consecrates the temple, then also the glory comes down. But as you point out, the second temple, instead of the Shekinah glory descending as a fire to consume the sacrifices, instead of a real presence, there's a real absence. And that's reinforced, of course, by the absence of the Ark of the Covenant. We read in 2 Maccabees 2, which even if you don't accept in your canon as a Protestant or as a Jew, you recognize that, you know, just as Jesus is celebrating the feast of, of, of dedication or Hanukkah in John 10, so it's a historically reliable and helpful source. And as a useful source, it shows us that Jeremiah took the ark back to where it was in a cave in a mountain near Horeb, and it's not going to be discovered again, not even by Harrison Ford. It's only going to be recovered, uh, recovered when the mercy of God returns. And what you find in Luke 1, as you alluded to, Timothy, is that the language of the Annunciation is deliberately evoking the typological parallels of the Ark of the Old Covenant with the Word of God in stone, you know, acacia wood covered by gold. And so this makes Mary not like the Ark, but more of an Ark than that box ever was. And so she contains the word of God made flesh. She contains the true manna, the bread of life. She contains the rod of the priesthood of Christ that budded more than Aaron's ever can, etc. And so by the time you trace that subplot from Luke 1 in the Annunciation narrative all the way to the Apocalypse, Revelation 11, 19, as you know, throughout the chapter 12 as well, you have the Ark of the Covenant revealed, but in a heavenly temple, not the earthly Jerusalem, in a divine temple, not one that is man-made, in one not made with hands. And by the time you conclude the apocalyptic visions of the heavenly liturgy in Revelation 21, I believe it's around verse 21, John makes this startling statement. Uh, in the new Jerusalem, there was no temple. You know, full stop. What? You know, that would be like in D.C. There was no Washington Monument, no Capitol building, no Supreme Court. While some of us might find 
relief in that. You know, <laughs> no Jew would ever find relief in a new Jerusalem devoid of the temple. And then you realize that was just a setup rhetorically because the, the Lord God Almighty is the temple and the lamb who's enthroned is the temple and the living water that flows from their thrones. And so it is the father, the lamb is the son, the living water is the Holy Spirit. Now, in a state of grace, the Trinity dwells in us. We call that sanctifying grace. But as we pass from grace to glory, we enter into the holiness of an uncreated temple. The threefold archetype always was the Blessed Trinity. And so this is beatitude. But it's not just a kind of divine staring contest where we have to stare at the divine essence. No, the essence of God as is beheld is something that consummates every mass we've ever participated in. And so we realize that even now there's a real presence and the Blessed Mother is the Ark of the New Covenant. And so the kavod, the glory of God, is revealed in a way that, again, exceeds their wildest dreams. And I think this is something that really, again, we could spend three hours pondering almost every sentence of these truths, but um, we ought to just reflect upon the fact that Revelation occurs in a very gradual way. The oikonomia of the unfolding plan of the Father to give us the Son, to pour out the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of uh, 1 Kings 19, where Elijah makes that pilgrimage back to Horeb, and he's in the cave, and he's complaining to God. I alone am left. No, you're not. There's a remnant. 7,000 haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And so then God reveals himself, but again, gradually. And it starts off, I believe, with a strong wind that breaks the stones, but the Lord was not in it. Then an earthquake, again, that is just causing tremors, but the Lord was not in it. Then fire, but the Lord was not in that fire. And then a still small voice, at which point Elijah wraps himself in his own prophetic mantle, comes out of the opening of the cave because he knew that the Lord in his holiness was gloriously present in that still small voice. Well, I would, and this is sort of a neo-patristic improvisation, but I would say that still small voice is, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the, you know, this is the chalice. And, you know, the still small voice of Christ, the high priest who's speaking through our priests to confect the Holy Eucharist. This is bringing about a greater glory than any earthquake, any fire, any mighty wind, and the best is yet to come when we see God in the face. But in the process, you know, this is another place where I would add the idea that what traditional Catholicism, what true Catholic belief calls for is a deep and abiding and profound Catholic uh, rediscovery and a, a kind of Catholic scriptural theology uh, and it's uh, it's the one thing that i find to be the most glaring and noticeable omission i remember talking to a very good friend of mine who's a who would call himself a traditionalist and i said can you help me with some names of traditional catholic scripture scholars or teachers you know and he just paused and he said wow huh that's a good question and after a couple of minutes he said i can't think of anybody and I said, yeah, I, I kind of knew that when I asked the question, you know, oh, so I want to use that as an invitation, not only to my friend, um, but also to all of us, um, because it isn't like we need more biblicists or scripture scholars, but we need more people like you, Timothy, 
who are just inebriated in a sober way and the and in the you know in the uh in the wine of god's word uh the best wine and uh, also to be feasting upon the living bread this is not something protestant you know you trace it back to the reformation no the revolution and likewise the post-conciliar renewal of catholic biblical scholarship to me is more like a, a post-conciliar deformation it is deformed scripture in a way that is almost tragic don't quote me on that because i i can hear in my own my mind you know the the echo of rhetorical excess here but um i feel so passionately about this kind of stuff you know i absolutely amen preach I, I feel as though over 20 years ago when i finally wrote the lamb supper and i put on paper what i had experienced back in the mid 80s when i went to my first mass in a basement chapel at lunchtime you know and it was a novus ordo celebrated by a jesuit but god so often chooses to do more with less especially for this protestant sitting in the back pew just jotting my observations and noticing a perfect match between what Justin Martyr described in, in the second century, what I was experiencing. But I, I do feel as though we've got to drain the swamp, the ecclesiastical and liturgical swamp, but we can't do that by diving into it and just wrestling, you know, like mud wrestlers with, uh, with liberals or, but, you know, what I wanted to do in the Lamb's Supper was to catch a, was to communicate a vision that I had just been given in a moment of minuscule grace, although it seemed bigger than the world to me at the time, that heaven is on earth. That when we say sursum corda, we can't lift our hearts all the way to heaven, but if we lift them even an inch or two, God will more than make up for what we lack. And what we need is a set of transcendent norms that goes beyond uh, cultural norms and customs. What do we wear? You know, What kind of music do we have? What kind of architecture? What kind of decorum? You know. If we are in heaven and God alone is holy and we're singing and hearing the angels sing holy, 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 then let's go back and rethink what we're going to wear, what we're going to sing, how we're going to act with our bodies and what kind of churches we're going to build. Because apart from the liturgical debates and battles and the swamp of ecclesiastical, you know, documents and so on, there's just a sense, I think, that comes upon the faithful Whereas Jesus is truly a better best friend than we will ever have, this idea that we have just a chummy old God has got to be transcended. You know, if anybody would have had a view of God like that, it would be the beloved disciple who reclined on Jesus' breast, you know, in the upper room on Holy Thursday. And yet when John sees him again after the ascension, you know, for the first time, apparently it's in Revelation chapter one and, uh, you read that he was in the spirit of the Lord's day and he turned to see who was speaking to him. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I saw seven golden lampstands, the menorah. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man with a long robe and a golden girdle. It's the liturgical vestment worn by the high priest. Only it's the heavenly high priest. And when I saw him, I mean, you'd half expect the beloved disciple to say, wow, you're looking better than ever. <laughs> so good to see you again, dear friend. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's like Isaiah, woe is me. And, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, come on, John, get over yourself. Don't be so scrupulous. He has to give him a solemn word of promissory assurance that I am the Alpha and the Omega. I have the keys of death and Hades. So do not be afraid. 
He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. It's don't give into your fears. Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living and the dead, and so on and so forth. And I, I just think that by getting first principles right, then we can probably do more in adjusting our course to get over all of the kind of banal and trivial things that have led to the recovations and the deformation of liturgy and faith. And, you know, by restoring that sense that God is holy, not just chummy, but not holy in the sense of the Wizard of Oz is trying to terrorize, you know, those characters. But there's a sense in which the still small voice of the high priest in heaven through my own son now, Father Jeremiah, you know, that brings about the glory of God with the Lord high and lifted up, manifesting the power of the kingdom. Is not this dominion that he always has so he can dominate his creatures. No, it really is something that transforms creatures in a way that creatures could never do on their own. They couldn't do it for God. Holiness is not righteousness, so we're not out to become just bigger and better versions of ourselves. Like the beloved disciple, we've got to become smaller and closer to our Lord, even as we're aware of our own uncleanness and of our own of our own finitude, our mortality. You know, I, I one part of the catechism that I quote at the very beginning of the book, I think is one of the best statements in the whole catechism. In 2809, after wrestling with all of these inadequate definitions of what holiness is, I came across this years ago, and I've just held on to it. The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. That's why it's not mercy, 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 love, love, love. It really is holy, 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 and his mercy is holy, and his love is, and his justice and his power are as well. But to recognize that you alone are holy, that holiness is, in a sense, our attempt to describe the inexpressible, our attempt to approach the inaccessible. Holiness is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And then it adds, but what is revealed of holiness in creation and history, that's what scripture calls glory, kavoth, doxa, the radiance of his majesty, citing Isaiah 6, what it is Isaiah saw. So for a creature to witness divine holiness is really only a visible expression. It's kind of turning down the volume of true holiness, of infinite holiness. And then we, we realize what Rudolf Otto described in Das Heilige, in the idea of the holy. It's the mysterium tremendum at Fascinans. It fascinates. You know, Moses was enthralled by a bush that is burning but not is consumed, but it also causes us to tremble as Moses turned away. But above all, it's the mysterium. It is the sacred mystery of God in the flesh. And then that flesh coming to us, you know, in the Holy Eucharist. And if we get holiness right, everything else will follow. Whereas if we don't get holiness right, Whatever else we get right will almost be happenstance. It will be fragmented. It will be accidental. And so this is why I see in my own life, you know, I begin talking about what I learned of God's holiness 50 years ago from Dr. R.C. Sproul. But I also think back to what I wrote 20 years ago in the Lamb's Supper, that if we understand holiness, most all of these debates will just be retired respectfully and we'll be able to prepare ourselves and our families to attend the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, in a way that is truly fitting to God's holiness and equally fitting 
if we are sincere about wanting to become saints ourselves. Well, I think that perfectly summarizes the immense importance of this topic of holiness. If we get holiness right, everything else will follow. And I, I, the, the, the name of your book so perfectly describes this, holy is his name. I remember my Eastern Orthodox catechist years ago was mentioning how you know, the Muslims have an idea of transcendence, Allahu Akbar, but they, God does not have a name. But in, in Christianity, he is holy, 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 and yet he reveals his name. And, and the, um, in the Magnificat, or it, well, in the, in the traditional Mass, you, you bow your head at the name of Jesus. Um, but I, I, I'm so thankful for what you're doing, Dr. Han, is really restoring the Catholic understanding and the centrality of Holy Scripture because even today, you know, people make these comments, well, you know, the scripture or, or, you know, you must be very Protestant or I'm a Catholic, so I don't know the scripture. But really knowing the scripture, being mighty in the scripture is a totally Catholic thing to be. That's right. And this is why conversion is not what happened to me when I was 14 out of juvenile court or what happened to me 36 years ago at the Easter Vigil. Conversion has to happen in an ongoing, lifelong and daily manner. That's the last chapter of the book as well. And I, I'm convinced that Saul and his fellow Pharisees knew the Hebrew Bible. But what Paul the Apostle is describing is more than just hermeneutical reverse engineering. It really is a transformed and sanctified imagination, intellect, will, and above all, that forgotten faculty that Peeper finds in Aquinas, and that is the memoria. Not just the memory of what I ate for dinner last night, but the memoria which is the liturgical faculty of the soul, which precedes both intellect and will. And this is what, you know, you know, without memory, I couldn't finish the sentence. Without memory, I wouldn't know who you are or why we're talking to each other. But memoria is this liturgical faculty. We remember the Sabbath day, not by recalling it at Saturday. We remember the covenant, not just by recalling this, but memoria is what we need to kind of rediscover and reanimate in order to recognize that the liturgy is what will transform our reading of scripture. And then in turn, our understanding of sacred scripture is going to transform our experience of the holy sacrifice of the mass. Absolutely. Now, I, we only have time for, I wanted to get some of the questions from the Fellowship of St. Anthony. We had three questions. One was way too controversial. We don't have time for that. The other two questions are, how do you practically exegete the scripture? And when is the St. Ignatius Study Bible full coming out? Because this is this uh, New Testament, which you published with uh, Curtis Mitch, is one of the best New Testament resources out there, I would say. Probably number one. And uh, so when is, the, is there a plan for the full Bible sometime soon? Yes. Uh, so that New Testament came out uh, 12 years ago in 2010. We finished the entire Old Testament in December of 2020. Uh, the imprimatur, the nihil obstat, the whole editorial process, and Ignatius Press. I mean, it's a great press, but like so many publishers, it is like a glacier in how it moves. And so my prayer is that their pledge to see this out by the end of next year, the, the the late fall or winter of 2023. But I mean, that cries out ora pro nobis. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah. They need prayer to get this thing through the pipeline and out. But when it's out, it will be one volume. Uh, the New Testament that you just held up is thick pages. These will be onion skin pages like most study Bibles. But I do believe that it is going to 
transform the next generation of Catholics in how they read scripture in the light. Well, they read scripture with the tradition. And then they also re, they, they, they rediscover the tradition and scripture as like heads and tails, two sides of the same coin, as it were, called the Catholic faith. Absolutely. Yes, this is... <laughs> it's hard to even put a name on this the, the immense resources that just the new testament is and I, I just can't wait for the old testament to come out i mean this is going to be a watershed moment in biblical scholarship in the, in the 21st century as you said so uh well, thank you go ahead i'd like to ask for prayers for uh the steubenville diocese it's been out on the news now a few days that our bishop has requested uh the usccb and the vatican suppress our diocese and kind of uh, absorb it into the, the, the Columbus Diocese. Uh, my own son, Father Jeremiah, has been a priest for a year and a half, and uh, my own pastors down at St. Peter's in downtown Steubenville are somewhat brokenhearted. I think a, a, a decent solution might be that we retain our own diocesan integrity and then come under Bishop Fernandez, who is an amazing bishop, the new one there in Columbus, for a time until we can get back up on our feet again. But pray for this diocese. St. Peter's is my home parish now for 33 years. You know, we it's always at Orientum. It's We receive at the altar rail. Every Sunday at noon is the Latin, the traditional Latin mass, which I go to almost invariably. And even the 10 o'clock Novus Ordo is full of Gregorian chant and Latin and so on and so forth. And so it really is something of a vital center uh, at the heart of Steubenville, where mass attendance on average for our diocese is well over 50% among the highest in the, in the wow. country, although the, the population is in steep decline. But just the town itself, I think, is sort of probably closer to 70 or 80%, not just the university, where so many of the, the Catholic kids who come in, having had some experience of the charismatic renewal or some summer conference in high school, they, they also discover the traditional Catholic, what well, Catholic tradition, the traditional Latin mass. And there really is this exciting sense as Clement Harold wrote in first things back in May or June of this year that you have tradismatics you have Trentacostals you have yes. lad trads and uh, you know may their tribe increase uh-huh yes absolutely well well let's offer all of these intentions to our lady pray a Hail Mary for the Steubenville diocese um for for the intention for for God's will to be done and for all the souls in the Steubenville diocese and for the renewal of Holy Scripture in the hearts and souls of the faithful. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for being here. It's been an honor, a pleasure, a joy. Thank you for your good work. Timothy, you're most welcome, but thank you again for the gracious invitation, this virtual hospitality. I can't wait to meet up in real life and uh, spend a few hours uh, continuing this conversation and venturing off into many other fascinating topics. I, I really look forward to that. Keep God up. willing. God willing. Very soon. All right. God bless everybody. Mm -hmm.